This Dharma talk was recorded at Prairie Mountain Zen Center in Longmont, Colorado. All right, good evening again, everyone. Uh, welcome to class three in our Prairie Mountain Zen Center winter 22 class on gratitude, faith, and compassion. Thanks again to Jodo-san for encouraging our practice and study. As a brief review, in our first week of the class, we studied how Buddha began by cultivating this upright sitting practice as the central way to study the self, as Dogen Zenji would call it, and thereby awaken into what we call enlightenment. We noted that suffering arises in each human life and that our practice examines this suffering directly, leads to specific ways to alleviate that suffering. We examined how fear and distress enhance our suffering, manifesting vulnerability in the self. And in this early test of faith, we began to cultivate gratitude as an antidote to fear and to suffering. In week two, we faced directly into doubt, resistance, and anger, fundamental challenges that arise in our practice in life. Meeting these challenges through Buddha's holistic practice with our body, heart, and mind we cultivated gratitude more actively, opening to the simple yet complex reality that every self is composed of non-self elements. The wonder, depth, and breadth of this practice realization helps ground living beings in genuine gratitude that transforms our practice into the Bodhisattva way. This week, we examine more specific forms of resistance and doubt, in particular cynicism and what we might call intellectual scorn. Westerners especially come from a long tradition of intellectual challenge and skepticism. This enables them to critique the Buddha way and any spiritual practice or philosophical system in many ways. Even in ancient India, there were many forms, rival forms of philosophy and spiritual practice out of which Buddha developed the middle way. Truly one can speculate that it was partly because of this rich atmosphere of cultural and spiritual inquiry that Buddha could have manifested and developed such a practice. Considered this way, one can actually appreciate the rigor of the practice and the doctrine and its practical approaches to meeting the challenges that arise, including the way it stands up to intellectual critique and intense skepticism. As noted, the Western tradition is rigorous and strong, and modern society is saturated with rational challenges to all kinds of intellectual, political, and religious systems. 
This tradition of philosophical and critical inquiry provides Western culture with a tremendous strength. Yet it also leaves short in some ways when it comes to engaged practice, particularly when it comes to imports from the East. If the West is critical, even of its own philosophical and religious traditions, which it certainly is, it can be even more scathing and critical of social religious imports from Eastern culture. So this makes for a particular challenge for modern Western Buddhist practitioners whose own tradition predisposes them towards critical and intellectual stances that can hinder open-hearted practice and the openness necessary for awakening. One antidote can be to find a teacher who manifests Buddha's own openness to critique. In my experience, it is very beneficial having a teacher who invites you to challenge the practice, saying something like, please, don't take my word for it. Try out this practice yourself. Give it a real shot. Test it fully and see what happens. At least give yourself an entire year really saturating yourself in the practice. And if you don't have any benefit, then maybe you can walk away. But at least you'll have tried fully and wholeheartedly. And this kind of approach can be very supportive. A teacher sort of modeling it makes it, gives it sort of a permission to really inquire for oneself and not simply take some authority's word. But of course, trying out the practice does require a wide ranging effort. Returning to our central themes of the evening, cynicism and intellectual scorn are widespread maybe especially so in the West and Western culture. And yet there exists alongside them, as we said, a rich tradition of open-minded inquiry, of rational experiment and enduring curiosity. These elements in Western culture can work as antidotes to more skeptical mindsets and can help practitioners open and meet their own doubt and resistance. But first, one must notice when cynicism and intellectual scorn arise and investigate their sources, their impacts, thoroughly and carefully. In this respect, the Buddha way provides a method for meeting these challenges. By understanding these phenomena as types of resistance and hindrance, maybe even fear, examining them fully and openly. Practitioners can meet these obstacles and work with them using a flexible open mind, observing how they function as types of human suffering that we can meet and dissolve. One way to go about this is to go on session, to repeatedly sit longer retreats and yet also investigate one's own heart and one's own old patterns of thought, 
speech and behavior. So one is really actively investigating. Cynicism can arrive and arise along with doubt. A sharpened, even sardonic approach and response. Yet it can be a defensive posture, pushing away real engagement and real exploration of a practice and a kind of religious immersion that we need. Without doubt, Zen Buddhist practice is rigorous and challenging. It requires intensive immersion. Lacking such engagement, it does not lead to transformation in the fullest sense. Yet partial engagement might be a result of fear, the manifestation of doubt and uncertainty in oneself, a deep underlying fear that one is not worthy or capable of profound awakening. To posture cynically at a long established spiritual practice like Zen Buddhism can be a defensive effort to push away this most pervasive human doubt. The senior teacher at Tassajara, Leslie James, practicing there for over 40 years, understands unworthiness as the deepest, most pervasive human fear, one that hinders and obstructs us at ultimate levels. Awakening to our own true Buddha nature is certainly an ultimate level. To meet this kind of deep-seated doubt, we must practice real self-compassion and deep patience. We start with loving kindness in order to, to develop the warmth in our heart for self, for other, for all moments of suffering. And this helps link to compassion in our practice. The Metta Sutta is the chant that we do when we are practicing these Brahma Viharas. However, when we engage with Metta practice, sending out compassion and well-being and loving kindness to all beings, first of all, we start with ourselves. And frequently, this is the part of the practice we like the least, preferring by far to say metta for others, for all beings, rather than for ourselves. This hesitancy and resistance points to underlying self-doubt and struggles with the warmth and kindness towards self, with the effort to manifest self-compassion. The majority of practitioners, as I say, feel much more comfortable sending compassion out to others over self. And this does reveal elements in both the human self and in Western culture, that human beings struggle to feel worthy, struggle to love themselves just as they are. There are many reasons for this, but chief among them is the palpable, pervasive perception that we are developing through time, progressing from point A to point B, point A being youth, inexperience, 
lack of training and understanding. And point B, somewhere out there, maturity, skillful capacity, strength, knowledge, attainment, enlightenment. This perspective of lack, of not being enough, of not being there, that goal out there, pervades human consciousness across most cultures, not just Western culture. And yet it is pervasive in the West. Since we emphasize individualism and achievement so stridently, this cultural foundation tends to perpetuate a sense of lack, something David Loy expresses in his book, A Buddhist History of the West. Rather than accepting ourselves for who we are, for our intrinsic Buddha nature, the strong tendency is to criticize the self for its failures, its inadequacies, its inevitable shortcomings. And, and therefore, we often yearn for others to do this for us. If others recognize us, then we might feel worthy. The pervasive assumption of this perspective manifests and makes it difficult to send loving kindness and compassion to self. It's as if our inner critic believes we need to double down on our harsh self-criticism rather than lighten up and accept who we are. The presence of the inner critic can become another form of intellectual scorn for Buddhist practice. This critic finds all kinds of cunning ways to resist healthy practices, undermining them with long-established narratives of unworthiness. To meet the inner critic is difficult, takes time, requires patience and real compassion. Typically, our practice needs to deepen and mature before we hear how pervasive this voice has become. This is another reason for the success of the inner critic, for it enhances its ability to influence us, driving its narrative deep into our psyche and consciousness. It can even become sub or unconscious, and so take years of practice for any practitioner to become quiet and still enough to admit and hear its presence. It can even transform into cynicism as a form of protection, pushing away meta-practice as something for beginners. This pride can develop in Zen practice partly because it is difficult to be vulnerable, especially after years of practice. One would like to be upright and mature rather than admit pervasive sufferings and fundamental difficulties that the practice of metta and loving kindness can dissolve. One wise seasoned Zen teacher told me how she likes to meet her inner critic. It takes quiet stillness, but when she hears that harsh inner voice, she cultivates the courage to say, ah, critic, I hear you. And I understand you have something to tell me, but I can't hear you when you talk like that to me. 
And this way, it sounds a little silly almost, right? Like we have a one part of ourself here and another part of ourself here, like in a cartoon caricature. But I find this can be very helpful just to even imagine the suffering self as a little bit separate from the harsh critic flailing us with a, a stick again and again, and being able to summon the courage with our mindful observer and say, you know, I understand you have something to share, but I can't hear when you talk to me that way. Patience, therefore, is another fundamental element in our practice. In fact, it is so vital and important that it is understood as one of the six paramitas or the perfections of practice. This can come as a surprise since patience or forbearance seems so old-fashioned, as if it originated only with quiet nuns or elderly monks who dwell only in remote, humble, monastic dwellings or caves somewhere far from society, unrecognized, distant from the centers of commerce and busy families and everyday life. Yet the practice of patience is a universal element in spiritual practice because it is so difficult for human beings to accept themselves and this world. We suffer specifically because we struggle to accept this reality, this body, this family, this relationship, this job, this culture, this world, where old age, sickness, and death pervade. Our struggle to accept things as they are pervades our consciousness, hinders spiritual awakening and acceptance. It can be heartbreaking to experience, yet this is a tenderizing and softening process we must undergo in order to mature and let go and accept. The practice of patience is then one of the most challenging and difficult in all spiritual practice. And it is especially difficult because it does not appear active, like something we do intentionally, the way we intentionally go to Zazen, go to Sashen, go to residential practice period, go to Dokusan. Instead, while we practice patience, we can actually struggle in profound and painful ways. Patience may appear passive, yet it requires great spiritual courage and commitment to engage the practice of patience. We need to cultivate that self-compassion as well. To bring these practices together requires intention and commitment. And this effort can be enhanced by our active practice with a sangha and with teacher support, and sharing openly in Dokusan, one-on-one private interview, and also meeting with our Dharma sisters and brothers, where we can share openly and honestly and safely in our study of the self. This is especially true when difficult circumstances arise in our lives, including the death or loss of loved ones, Grief manifests 
in myriad ways and unpredictable ways. Just as trauma can linger and trigger us into challenging emotional and mental states, so also can grief plunge us into difficulties that can be hard to perceive when they wrap us round. Immersed in its all-encompassing grasp, we may not always be aware how impacted we are. Patience and self-compassion then become more difficult to access and to practice. We need to cultivate them and therefore the support of teachers and sisters and brothers and Sangha can actively enhance our ability to do this practice, providing insight and opportunities for open sharing and awakening. As with my priest friend's example, the the practice of patience may involve restraining our mind's tendency to criticize. This is to practice a way of retraining our mind when triggered into self-criticism and harsh recrimination of unworthiness. It may also look like committing to a more regular zazen practice, whether in temple or at home, but in a way softened and gentled by our true self-compassion, not hardening off or plunging hardly ahead. When confronted by difficult circumstances, we may want to flee in all sorts of ways, whether into self-limiting recrimination, into overwork, into chattery superficial conversation, or alcohol and drugs, or even just turning away from the zendo and abandoning the practice of cultivating silence and stillness. Human beings can flee traumatic circumstances in wildly varied ways. So our practice of patience centers on being clear-eyed and openly honest to how we are meeting what is arising in this moment. In this way, the practice of patience may look and feel more like cultivating one's inner warrior, manifesting and actively cultivating a powerful resolve to witness clearly and not turn away. At other times, the practice of patience may require us to honestly admit that we are tremendously sad, sorrowful, and heartbroken. Under these circumstances, we may need to allow ourselves time to step away from responsibilities and our normal round of activities. When life-transforming events unfold, it takes courage simply to acknowledge them and give ourselves permission to rest and allow the sorrow its space and time. When we give this to ourselves, the space and time we need to experience these circumstances fully, we are cultivating the practice of patience with true wisdom that deepens and transforms our spiritual practice and our inner self. We allow the experience of sorrow and transformative loss to enter and deepen and change us forever. No experience or anticipatory preparation can fully prepare us 
to cross this threshold. Yet when it comes, we can draw upon our practice more intentionally and allow ourselves to be held in its supportive presence. To give expression to how these circumstances enter our lives, I will conclude with a poem by the Irish poet, William Butler Yeats. It's called The Boat, The Cloak, and The Shoes. What do you make so fair and bright? I make the cloak of sorrow. Oh, lovely to see in all men's sight shall be the cloak of sorrow in all men's sight. What do you build with sails for flight? I build a boat for sorrow. Oh, swift on the seas all day and night saileth the rover sorrow all day and night. What do you weave with wool so white? I weave the shoes of sorrow. Soundless shall be the footfall light in all men's ears of sorrow, sudden and light. Thank you. You've been listening to a Dharma talk from Prairie Mountain Zen Center in Longmont, Colorado. To learn more about us or to make a donation, visit us at prairiemountain.org.